The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. Good evening and welcome to the Gospel-Centered Life. Um, my name is Andrew Clausen. I'll introduce myself in just a second, but if you're here for the Gospel-Centered Life, you're in the right place. Uh, this is the third week, so I assume most of you have already been here before, maybe. Most of you are shaking your heads. It's great. Um, I'm encouraged by that. Um, my name is Andrew Clausen, and I'm one of the pastors on staff here. I'm the pastor of community and formation here at Park Church. Um, a little bit about myself, not because I'm important, but just so that you feel like you know me, which somehow helps when we talk together. Um, I'm from Omaha, Nebraska. I went to the University of Nebraska, so if there's anybody here that went to Mizzou or Colorado, I'm sorry. Um, if you went to other schools, that's great. Um, but if you went to see you, let's talk afterwards. Um, I grew up in Nebraska. I grew up in the church, um, and yet was saved by Jesus powerfully when I was in college. Um, really changed almost everything in my life when I was a senior in college, which was just a, a unique experience for me. Um, obviously, that's redundant. That seems unnecessary to say, but that's okay. Um, and so, yeah, so uh, after being saved by Jesus, started working at the church that I grew up at. Uh, after that, or while I was there, um, started dating and married my wife now of seven years. Her name is Greer, which is exciting because most of you, none of you are named Greer, right? Any Greers in the house? It's awesome. She's got a unique name. It's kind of fun. Um, her whole family has unique names, which is less fun when, like, everybody has unique names, but it's still pretty cool for a lot of reasons. Um, and so we're trying to, like, mess with our kids so that they have unique names. It's great. We can be those parents who just, like, mess up our kids in the way that our parents messed up us, right? Um, and so we've been married seven years. We have three kids. Uh, we have Owen, who's almost six. We have a daughter, Myra, who is two. And then my wife is going to have a baby here in the next three weeks, which is really, really exciting. And so this is, like, the last time I'm teaching, I think, for, like, a month um, because that would just be foolish for a lot of reasons. Uh, and so, um, yeah, I've been here at Park Church for a year now, uh, just over a year. Uh, before that, I was at another church in Kansas City. Um, anybody here from Kansas City? No, nobody. Usually we have a decent amount. Anybody here from Texas? Whoa, that's crazy. Only three people. Usually it's like half the room. How many natives here? Wow, that's also crazy. Okay, that's great. Usually there's like one native and 38 Texans. Um, I'm being serious. Like that's not even a, it's, it's bizarre. We have like so few Colorado natives and just a ton of Texans. Um, but that's great. We're thankful for Texans and for Coloradans. Um, yeah, my wife and I have been married seven years. We came here a year ago. Before that, we were in Kansas City. Before that, we were in Chicago doing grad school. My wife worked for UPS for almost 10 years doing sales. Anybody here work for UPS? That's a great company. Anybody here work for FedEx? I do this a lot, I'm sorry, but it's actually, it's really helpful because it engages people and it, it helps me just know you a little bit more. I'll do that often though. Um, yeah, UPS is a great company. If you're looking for a job, it's a great place to go, great place to work, great place to start, work your way up through the ladder of, of, of life. Oftentimes like their managers and even their C-level executives drove a truck at one point. It's fascinating. Um, people who work at UPS, they stay there forever. Um, my wife didn't because we had babies. Um, and so, yeah, that's a little bit about me. Like I said, I oversee pastor or pastor. I oversee community information here at Park, which means um, 
Essentially, what we do on Monday nights in our equipping classes, like Gospel Center Life, like the class downstairs, How We Change, that's kind of our formation piece. And then kind of the community piece is what are we doing in gospel communities? How are we shaped by relationships? Which is one of the reasons why I'm here tonight, because we're going to talk about relationships, which is really exciting. So a couple of quick logistics. There's bathrooms. I don't remember if that bathroom down the hall works. So let's just say there's bathrooms through that door and down the stairs. Does anybody know if that bathroom down there works? Great. Okay, great. Last time I was up here, it didn't work. So I'm encouraged by that. Um, so there's a bathroom around there. Um, feel free to get up at any time, get something, something to eat or something to drink. Um, and yet we will have a break. We'll have multiple breaks where we discuss different things, but also we'll have a break in the middle of our time at about around 7.30 where we'll get up and we'll move our legs so that we don't all fall asleep. I might fall asleep standing up here. It's getting warmer as we breathe. If you guys could stop breathing so much, that would help me. Um, but that being said, let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump in and talk a little bit about how the gospel um, affects our relationships. Jesus, we're, um, we're, just, we're really thankful to be a part of your church. We're thankful to be here tonight. We're thankful that we can um, yeah, read your word and know what it says, that we're not left in the dark to ourselves to um, just ponder what you have tried um, and attempted to tell us. No, we can know exactly what you have said. So Jesus, as we turn to your word tonight, we ask that you would help us to uh, understand it rightly, that we would see um, the glorious news that you have died, that we might have life, um, and that you were um, raised from the dead, that we might have life with you into eternity. We, we pray these things in your name. Amen. Um, the, the only other kind of announcement E type thing I have is um, you guys got these, I think, on night one. And um, this is going to be hard because you can't actually see it, but on October 11th, so in two Sundays from yesterday, we have this thing called Group Connect. And um, we would encourage you, one of the reasons why we have this class, Gospel Center Life, is because um, we want everybody at Park Church to be in a gospel community. Um, not because we think gospel communities are the best thing in the entire world, but because we are actually designed for relationships with people. We're going to talk about that tonight. Um, but on October 11th, in the basement, so underneath the sanctuary, um, we'll have this thing after all three services called Group Connect. And essentially... Um, any gospel community that has the capacity to uh, bring in some new people. And then uh, really we'll have about five or six brand new gospel communities. And so they're not, they don't have any people yet. They need you guys to fill those gospel communities. We're going to have those leaders down there and you can meet them. You can exchange phone numbers. You can say, oh, this couple over here, like they're, they don't look like weirdos, so I might as well join their gospel community. And they live relatively close to where I live, so I should join their gospel community. That's in two weeks, October 11th, after every single service. So 9, 11, and 5 o'clock, essentially 10.30, 12.30, and 6.30. So um, that's Group Connect. And we will have, just so that you know, this card, which is really helpful in one sense because it points you to the website, but we will have an updated card by that time that actually has updated information. What's, what's great about these cards is that it shows you this wonderful map of Denver. Um, what's terrible about these cards is the moment you print it, it goes obsolete um, because information changes that rapidly. So the best thing about this card is it pushes you to the website and just says, hey, um, live, real-time data can be found at parkchurchdenver.org forward slash community. Now, um, let's recap a couple of the things that we've talked about so far together. Um, what are some of the things, maybe I should just ask you guys, it's really helpful when I don't just talk the entire time. And I mean that. I, I'm not just trying to get out of work. Um, I'm not just trying to get out of something that I should probably be doing. What are some of the things that we've talked about so far in Gospel-Centered Life? 
And then I'm going to let a really long, awkward pause until people talk. That's great. I love awkward pauses. My favorite show probably is The Office because it like just harps on awkwardness at all costs. It drills into awkwardness. So I will, I will stand up here until five people talk. What have we talked about so far in the Gospel Center life? Every good story has conflict and resolution. It's great. It's great. Every good story has conflict and resolution. That's true. It's true. What else? Okay, yep, the ways that we um, take what we have done and we try to sweep it under a rug or we try to say, oh, it's not, that, not really that big of a deal or, yep, self-justification. Our inner lawyer comes out and we uh, find ways to justify what we've done. It's great, really helpful. What else? Somebody else was saying something somewhere over here. Heart idols, okay, idols of the heart. Ways in which our heart responds to situations um, inappropriately, wrongly, sinfully. Things that we put on the throne of our hearts that rule and direct our decision-making, our choices, how we understand desires. It's great. Really helpful. What else? On top of that, I guess, reasons, or not on top of that, I guess, the deeper reason part of it is why we sin. From there, we can turn back to the gospel in a more reasoned way. Saying, oh, yeah, I'm so sorry. I'm going to have to sin again. That's great. Okay, so not just confession for confession's sake but actually recognizing there's something lying under our, our sin that we need to address with the gospel. That's great. Man, you guys have listened. I am very thankful for that. So uh, we've also talked about this cross chart, which is really helpful. I'm going to talk about it just because it's one of the most helpful things I've ever seen. I know that's crazy, but it is really helpful for me. Even every time I teach this class, which I love doing, um, this cross chart is super helpful. Um, the cross chart just helps us understand kind of um, what life can look like as we apply the gospel over and over and over again. Um, because as we'll talk about tonight, sin happens, conflict happens with people. And so essentially, uh, this is kind of our genesis as people. This is when we we're born and time moves this direction. And some of us might be somewhere right here along the timeline. And some of us um, are here in the timeline. And this point right here kind of reflects when we come to know and believe in Jesus. So this is conversion right here. And some of us in this room and some of us at Park Church are, are still figuring out who is this Jesus person? What, what did he do that actually matters in this world? And some of us are over here where we've, we've come to accept and believe the good news of who Jesus is. And now, hopefully, we're growing in the gospel, where the gospel, the cross, essentially gets bigger and bigger. Um, God's glory is magnified as we understand the gospel more. And so this chart is also helpful because it gives us these categories for understanding that, that um, the, the cross will grow as we have a growing awareness, is the language that the writers of the Gospel Center Life use, a growing awareness of two things in proportion to one another. And so as we understand um, the depth of our own sin. As we grow in our own awareness that we are sinful people, that we fall short of the glory of God, then our awareness at the same time grows for God's holiness in the gospel. That as we come to understand just how bad our sin is, the more we grow in understanding just how good God is in the gospel. Now, some of us will dwell on this and we fall into these, these deep caverns of guilt and shame and we can't pull ourselves out 
Because instead of looking to God's holiness, instead of looking to the cross, we just look at our sin. And that's the wrong way to understand the gospel because the gospel says, yes, you've got to look at your sin. You've got to understand your sin. You have to address the reality that you are a sinful person. And yet, the gospel says, Jesus has saved you. We can glory in that. We can be thankful for that. We can celebrate. You don't have to dwell upon your sin. You have to know it. You have to identify it. You have to turn away from it. But then trust in who Jesus is and what he has done for you. So this cross chart really helpful for understanding kind of all of life together. Um, I feel like there was one other thing that I wanted to go back to. We've talked about idolatry. Um, you guys talked about idolatry. There's this awesome chapter, or kind of two chapters in Isaiah, um, where Isaiah is talking about kind of the hilarity of idolatry, how, how in Isaiah's day, people would essentially, would actually create physical idols, which we don't do that today in quite the same way, although I think many of us, I would say, worship um, like created things, even though our idols are in our hearts, we still worship created things. I was amazed the other weekend, um, or this last weekend, the other night, I should say, on Friday night, I was driving to go grab Chipotle burritos. Um, I love Chipotle burritos. If, if you were here yesterday, I have this weird affinity for all things Chipotle, which is actually only like six things, because they only do six things, and they do them really well. Um, but I was going to pick up burritos for me and my wife for our dinner on Friday night, and um, I was driving kind of up into Highland Square, which is just a, a few blocks that way, 32nd and Lowell, this fun little area. And I was driving up there, and I, I, I saw tons of people walking because it was a Friday night. And um, anybody who was walking with somebody else was just walking, and they're kind of talking, and they're walking, and it's you know pretty typical walking fare. And anybody that was walking alone, every single person I walked by or I drove by who was walking alone was walking like this. The entire drive over there, nobody was walking alone without just staring at their phones. And so what's funny is just because the idols of our heart are essentially inside of us, we still worship physical things. But there's this awesome passage in Isaiah kind of 43 and into chapter 44 where Isaiah talks about how, how people in his day would actually build like real physical idols, you know, like little statues and creatures and different things, and they'd worship those things essentially. And he talks about how funny it is that, that with the same log, these people would build an actual idol and they'd worship it, and with the exact same, with the other half of the log, they would light their fire. They would chop up and put in the fire and it would warm them and help them feel good and it would help them make food essentially that it was this source of life even though it wasn't really a source of life and they would burn it and yet here's this idol. It's just hilarious. And so these idols are are things that won't actually, um, they're not God. They're false gods that we put on the thrones of our heart and we worship them and they they direct our decision making. Now I want to talk about um, the gospel before we jump into how the gospel affects relationships. Um, one of the things I love about the Gospel Center Life, this class that we're in, is that we talk about the good news of who Jesus is just over and over and over again. And so if you guys are new to Park, which usually, if you're here, that means you're relatively new to Park, um, you might get tired of hearing this word gospel and definitions for the gospel, but, but we are never going to stop coming back to this good news. And so every single time we have a class, we're going to define what the gospel is. We're going to say what it's not. And so so as we understand what the gospel is, we believe that first and foremost, it is good news. It is not advice. It's not something you take and do something with it. Although it has massive implications for life. 
It's not something you have to do something with. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to gain it. It's not something you take and then you, and then, and then you use it for your benefit. Even though it does benefit, it blesses you. It's something that you can do nothing about except but believe it. And so when we read in the newspaper or on our computer or on our phones, like something has happened in some other part of the world, it's not as though that actually does something for us necessarily. All we can do is say whether or not we believe what it is. So the gospel is good news. And it's news about somebody who has come to save sinful people like you and me. Now, if there's good news, that means there has to be what? There's bad news, right? We do this thing with our children called catechism. It's this scary word that actually means a really good thing. Basically, it means you, um, you ask questions and then your children answer answers. You just do it over and over and over again, which that sounds terrible when I say that out loud. But it is a great thing because really you just do like one new question every single night. And so like eventually you're doing like 50 questions after about 50 nights or so. You know what I mean? But night one you're doing first question and answer. Night two you're doing question one and question two. And we catechize our children and we, we, use, we use language like this and we say, you know, what is the gospel? It's good news. And if there's good news, then what does there also have to be? And our son always says, bad news. Well, what's the bad news? That you and I have rebelled against a holy and just God who's done everything in the world to show us that he loves us, that he cares for us. He's the creator. He's the king. And yet, we turned away from him. We run away from him headlong towards other false gods, things that we think will will satisfy and fulfill us. And yet, in his love and his mercy, he runs after us faster than we can run away. So there's good news. We can't do anything about it but believe it. We can hear it. We can believe it. And then we can let it influence our entire life. But it's not good advice. It's news. It's been done for us. We can't do anything to earn it. So, now that we've just find the gospel, um, why don't we take three minutes at our tables. And what I want you to do is um, introduce yourself to the people at your tables. Maybe I should ask first. Are you guys sitting at the same tables you've basically sat out for the last couple of weeks? No, I'm seeing a lot of... It's great. Wonderful. Introduce yourself to the people at your tables. Um, and then, after that, tell everybody one thing you did this weekend. That's great. I know that seems like kind of weird and icebreakery. I don't care. I want you to do it anyways. It's great. And it's beautiful outside, so hopefully you did something fun this weekend. Go.
Okay, let's come back together. It's good. Okay, so tonight we're going to talk about relationships. Um, relationships and how the gospel affects relationships. Uh, as I was preparing for talking tonight, I realized that my sermon has a lot of overlap uh, with tonight, but that's okay because it's good stuff, right? It's important that we think about how the gospel really affects relationships. Plus, tonight we get to talk about some specific things that are totally different than what we talked about yesterday. How many of you guys were here yesterday? Just okay, the rest of you. Just kidding. That's terrible. Hey, hey, the gospel's all about guilt and shame. It's terrible. Um, so let's look real quick at Genesis chapter two, if you will. Um, if you have a Bible or an app or something, grab it real quick and let's look at Genesis two. And pick up in verse 18, chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not God, or, <laughs> you should probably read it. Uh, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock. <clears throat> to the birds of the heavens, to the beasts of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made it into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not, un, were not ashamed. Were unashamed. That's the way I memorized that text. Um, we get here in this passage, and obviously other passages, even the passage we read yesterday, that there is built into our design relationships. And so even as God created Adam, as God created the first human being, it says that there was, there was something lacking. And it doesn't mean he was sinful or anything crazy like that. It simply means that he needed someone else. And so God, at, at first, God basically said, like, hey, I've got all these animals. You can name them and see if they're going to be good enough to satisfy your need as a created being in my world. It's, again, it's not as though God didn't know what he was actually going to do, but he did that. And then after the insufficiency of animals was figured out by Adam, God made Adam a helper, somebody to come alongside him. And it doesn't, it's not diminutive language. It's not trying to say um, good versus bad or greater versus lesser. What it's trying to say is, is that Adam needed somebody in order to get through life. And for us, as we look at people in Genesis as we look at norms in Genesis 1 and 2, we see a picture that you and I, we were created for relationships. We were created to be in relationship with other people. Now, what's hard about that is that the fall happens, right? In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, they're together, they're with God, they're in this wonderful communion with the Godhead, um, and, and they have purpose, they have life, they have work, they have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they have the, the tree of life. So there's these two trees, and God says, there's only one thing you cannot do. You can do everything else that you want to do. And on top of that, you can eat from the tree of life all that you want. 
They had never-ending access to the tree of life. And in their, in their desire to know what God knows, they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so they, they sinned, and, and through them we are sinners. We are born into sin. We are um, sinners by nature and by choice. And because of that, sin affects our relationships on an every single day basis. Now, we might not feel the effects of that. We're going to talk a little bit about that tonight. So we're going to talk about relationships in general for a little while, shortly. Then we're going to talk about conflict. So when sin actually comes out in our relationships, because a lot of the sin that we have in our relationships, we, we, we find ways to keep inside. We lock it up real tight. We don't show people. We don't tell people. Um, nobody knows about the ways in which we think about them. And so there's a lot of relational sin that never actually makes its way to the surface. And yet it's lurking in the depths of our heart. But there is some sin that does affect people that we're in relationship. And so there's conflict. And that's the second thing we're going to talk about tonight is conflict. And then the the last thing we're going to talk about tonight is what does forgiveness look like? How does the gospel afford us forgiveness? And then how do we as image bearers, as gospel people, how do we image God well as we forgive others. So uh, the fall happened. Sin breaks into this world because of our decision to rebel against God. So we, we disobey God. We disbelieve God. We disobey his word. Now, um, my notes are scrambled. And so I'm like, wait a second, what am I doing here? Um, But we as a people are called out of our sin. So if you look at the story of, of, of the Exodus, right? Moses is, um, Moses is called by God to go and basically lead a people out of Egypt. And Egypt symbolizes slavery and bondage and, and, and essentially kind of this, we can't be who we were created to be as God's covenant people. And so God calls Moses to go and to deliver his people out of Egypt. Essentially, uh, Moses is delivering God's people out of slavery. But he doesn't just deliver them out of slavery. He delivers them into a promised Land into a place where God will dwell with a new community of people. And so for us as, as, as Christians, for those of us who call on the name of Jesus, we're not just called out of our sin, though we are, but we're called into a new community, a new covenant community that is centered around the gospel, the good news. We're called into a community that is shaped and formed by the gospel itself and its implications. And so we are supposed to look different by design. We are supposed to call people to this beautiful gospel as we bear God's image in this world. In in community and formation, we talk about um, um, our desire as people, as disciples in gospel communities, in in basically everything we we do. Our desire is to cultivate an understanding of the gospel, So to actually um, cultivate kind of a a deep awareness and belief in the good news, and then to embody that gospel, which means we actually bear the fruit of that good news. And so for some of us, we've been to churches before where you you walk in the door, well, maybe I should say you you look on on the website and it says all these wonderful gospel things, it says all these wonderful, beautiful Christian ideas, you know, we're here to serve and we're here to welcome people and we're here to feel hospitable and all these wonderful things. 
And then you're like, man, this looks great. This should be my church. I'm going to go check out this church. And you show up, and the parking lot is like just in total disarray, and there's nobody helping you understand, how do I actually get to the building from the parking lot? You finally find the church building. There's nobody there to greet you. You walk into an open door with nobody in it, and there's some people mulling around the coffee, and you're like, what's going on here? Is this actually church? Am I an hour and a half late? Am I an hour and a half early? Is there a Broncos game today? What am I doing? You sit down in a pew. Nobody talks to you. You go through the rhythms and liturgy of, of the church worship service, and afterwards, nobody talks to you. You grab information on your way out, and you leave. Does that church embody the truth that they say they believe? No. Do those people embody the implications of the gospel? They don't. And that's not like me just being judgmental and mean. Like, that's the reality. If, if we believe this good news, it does mean something for our life. We can't do anything to earn it. Nothing. But when we believe it truly, it has to change our lives. Or we don't understand it. Jesus will talk about um, true... Uh, uh, Trees will bear the fruit of what their roots are situated in. And if our roots are situated in the gospel, we will bear good fruit. And so for us, as we think about relationships, as we think about how the gospel bears fruit in our life, we are a people who are not just called out of sin, out of slavery, out of Egypt, but we are called into this new community, this blood-bought people of God. And this place where relationships are is oftentimes the place where true gospel fruit takes a lot of, of maybe I should say where, where true gospel fruit bears the most fruit. Because it's in our interactions with people where sin really gets fleshed out. We have a lot of internal sin, but, but it's really only when we start relating to other people that we see that sin, that we understand that sin, that we can identify that sin. And so in our relationships, oftentimes relationships are the place where we can really deal with the reality of our sin. Now I want you to break into your groups again and walk through those first three or four, basically just the relationships category. We're going to do that for about seven minutes. Let's talk through those questions for just a seven minutes or so. Go! Okay, let's uh, come back together. So, who are some of the people you've had the longest relationship with? Family. Family? Okay, oftentimes, yep. What is made, oftentimes, it's almost always family. That's great. I would hope so, in one sense. Um, unless your fa- family's crazy. My family's kind of crazy. Seriously. I think that's true. Yeah, thank you for that. It's good. Got me right there. Um, what are some of the things that make good relationships great? I mean, what are just some of the things, the lasting things? Go ahead, throw it out there. You said um, shared experiences. Like, yes. Bad, but when you go through just life with people. Yeah. Was that really funny? Was that that funny? That was great. <laughs> it's so true. It is. It's weird. Like, if you guys, how many of you guys have done something like Outward Bound-ish? Any of you guys done something like that? Or just done a backpacking trip or something? Camping trip that was more than one night and didn't involve cars? It's, a, it's amazing how those things bond a group of people way more than like, hey, I really like this person. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, it's wild. 
it is absolutely wild. My wife went on this trip. Any of you guys go to Wheaton College? Yeah, Glenn. We talked about that. Um, lots of Wheaties. Interesting. So they do this thing. They do this thing before college where they. Um, you don't have to, but many of them choose to. Where you basically go on this month-long, um, crazy camping. Uh, it's basically a backpacking trip, but it has different elements, guys and girls, right before you start freshman year of college. And it's just wild. I mean, I, and she has friends from that thing that, that she still talks to on a, you know, a somewhat rel- relative basis. And um, it's just crazy. And, and I've met most of those people, and I'm like, wow, I can't believe you're friends with these people. Um, <laughs> They're weirdos, and um, I don't like—I don't even like them that much. But I'm thankful you do, so we can like—we can like them together. And that's actually a, a beautiful segue to the church. Other things, um, other things that, <laughs> other things that make relationships good and lasting. What are some things that make a good relationship? Trust. Okay, trust. Trust. Why trust? Well, I think. That's great. That's great. Other things. But on the trust on the other side of that being vulnerable. Yeah. Which definitely takes trust. Okay. But just being willing to open up. But then for them to know who you are, for you to know who they are on the deepest level. Yeah. The core that makes a real relationship. Yeah. It's really the things that are really who you are. Yeah. Why why is vulnerability hard? What makes it hard to be vulnerable with other people? We've been hurt in the past. Okay, yeah. Past experience where trust has been broken. It's hard to trust other people. It's great. What else? Pride. Pride. Yeah. We don't think we need people or we don't need to be open and honest about it. It's great. What else? What's that? Rejection. Rejection. Okay, yeah, yeah. So not even like broken trust or just like hey, I don't like you, kind of core identity type stuff. All this stuff's core identity stuff, but just like, that's hard. That's one of the hardest things. I'm always surprised with people. Um, You know, like dating relationships are really fun. We probably shouldn't talk about those. That would probably be unhelpful. But I'm I'm amazed how many people like start dating and um, like, I don't, you can just see it in them. They, They don't think that like, you know, person A doesn't think person B is like, the right fit, and that's that's a that's a normal thing that happens to everybody. It seems like, um, and yet they don't know how to tell them that, so they find some just terrible way to tell them that. And instead of just saying, "Hey, I really like you as a person," but like I don't, I don't think we're a great fit to date. And then they say something like, "I think Jesus is telling me to date somebody else," and you're like, "Really, Jesus? T- Jesus told you to say that?" And they're like, "Yep, mm-hmm, yep." And they're like, "Like Jesus just audibly told you that you should date somebody else?" And they're like, "Yep, mm-hmm." And I'm like, that's just stupid. Like, can't we just be honest? Like, I like you as a person, but I just don't think we should date. That's great. We don't need to theologize that. We don't have to over-spiritualize something that's just real. Like, hey, you're a good person. This isn't against your identity, but I don't think we should date anymore. It's amazing how hard that is. I pulled that once in high school, uh, in college as well. I did that too. I was like, yeah, I just think, I, I just think God's calling me something else. And it's like, something else other than you. It's just stupid. It's terrible. Other reasons why we're not vulnerable. Other reasons. 
You guys laugh because you've done it too. I know it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. See, it's good. We can confess to one another later. Um, other reasons why vulnerability is hard. Yeah. 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 Just the fact that when you're vulnerable, you're you're essentially asking somebody to see all of who you are. You're saying, "Hey, can you see me?" So even in that in that language surrounding um, when Adam and Eve were created, they were created and 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 you know they get married and it's this beautiful thing and it says that they were naked and they are, they were unashamed. They were perfectly and totally and completely vulnerable and they and they could be. They had no shame. Isn't that amazing? Not just the fact that they were like literally naked, although they, they probably were, but that they, they, they had nothing to hide from anyone. The gospel calls us to relationships like that, not where we're actually naked all the time, but where we're like emotionally vulnerable with people, where we're spiritually vulnerable with people, where we share with people the reality that, that we do struggle with sin, that we struggle with all kinds of things, um, that we think sinfully oftentimes, that we look at this world through a lens of, of us instead of a lens of who God is and what he has done. Now, um, when that gets fleshed out between two people or multiple people, um, we have conflict. Now, conflict is this wonderful thing, uh, a byproduct of the fall that will always be in our life until Jesus returns. I, I can't believe how many people I talk to that they act as though conflict is like the exception to the norm, especially in marriages, but really not just in marriages, in all kinds of relationships. They're like, they're like, man, I'm so surprised that this is happening. And I just go like, why are you surprised? This is what happens when sin is in a world full of people. Conflict happens. And so as people in this world who, who look at the world through kind of a gospel lens, through a biblical lens, we should see conflict and we should say, no, it's not an exception, it is the norm, and yet it's the, it is arguably the best place for gospel work to be done. And not just in the hearts of other people, but in our own hearts. And so conflict is this place where we have, we have this context for real and lasting growth. Uh, look with me, if you will, to, uh, at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter 5, and I'm going to pick up from verse 17. Therefore... If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God, excuse me, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We get here in this passage, this, this picture that we as people, as Christians, are called to a, a ministry of reconciliation, that, that a, an aspect of our life is to bear the reconciliatory power of the gospel in everyday relationships. 
So what does that mean? It says we're ambassadors. That means we represent the king in how we live. Ambassadors, in every single thing they say and do, they represent the king. And so we, as ministers in the service of the king, we are called to bear the image of God by being ministers of reconciliation. Essentially, that we are supposed to help people understand that all of us, first and foremost, are not at odds with one another, though we are in one sense. We are at odds, first and foremost, with God. And so just like we'll talk about forgiveness in a little while, um, that, that first and foremost we sin against God and we need forgiveness from God, in the same way we need reconciliation from God before we actually have reconciliation with other people. And so reconciliation is this language to talk about when, when Adam and Eve were, were um, removed from the garden, when they were um, thrown out of the garden functionally, and then there's these cherubim with the, uh, this flaming sword, this crazy sword that's basically keeping them out of the garden. There's this picture of them being removed from relationship. And reconciliation essentially is, is the, the bringing the estranged sons and daughters back into the family. And we as, as gospel people, full of conflict in this world because sin is present, we are called to reconciliation to reconciling relationships. And so what does that look like? How do we deal with that? I want you to... Um, Stop for a minute and uh, ask just the first question under conflict, just the first question. Think about the last conflict you had and answer that for about five minutes at your tables. Go. Just the first question under conflict. The whole bullet. Sorry, the, the whole bullet. Really sorry. Thank you. Okay. I know that was relatively short, but I want another discussion to bleed into uh, what you're doing. So now that you've talked a little bit, hopefully, about some conflict in your lives, and you can continue to talk about conflict in, in your life, just apply it to the categories that I just gave you in this sheet. Uh, grab the sheet. You can look at it, and I'll describe it real briefly. Um, most of us, these are really big, broad categories. That's why they're helpful. Um, they're not exhaustive, but they're helpful. Uh, most of us, all of us, I should say, fall into one of these categories as a norm for how we deal with conflict. So I want you to read the categories. Are you an attacker? Are you somebody who wants to deal with it right away? Are you somebody who wants to press through? Or you want to make sure every nook and cranny, every I is dotted, every T is crossed in every conflict that you have? Do you want to push through and push, 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 push? Or are you an avoider? Do you try to sweep it under the rug or say, oh, time will fix this? Or you try to say kind of the minimizing, like we talked about earlier, minimizing sin. Um, which category do you fall into? And then there's more questions on your question sheet to ask surrounding those categories. So think of the last conflict you have or conflict that you've had recently, I should say, and then apply those two categories. Ask some of those questions together in your group. Now go. Okay, let's come back together. How many of you fall into the attacker category? How many of us fall into, I say us because I am, fall into the attacker category? Okay. Come on, raise them high. Okay. 
That is not very high. Thank you. Um, how many into the avoider category? Wow, a lot of avoiders. I would have guessed 50-50, but I guess not. Why, uh, so for attackers, why do you think that is? It's such strong language. It is strong language. <laughs> You're saying that I think that's very harsh Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So there's the language itself is a little harsh, and yet at the same time, it's probably true. Probably. Just, just not for you, probably. <laughs> no, I mean, I think what, why, why else? Why do we think? Why do we tend towards attacking, pushing? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's great. How right am I in this situation? That's great. Yep. What else? Why else sir, do we tend towards attack? Pride in what is to be right. Yep. Yep. S very similar, but a little different. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why else? What's that? Urgency. Urgency, okay. Why urgency? Okay, so, okay, yeah, that's, yeah, that's true. Sure, okay. Okay, so you're saying, though, if something's there, you might as well fix it as fast as possible. No, I'm saying if it's urgent, you have to take care of it. Oh, okay, the urgency of the situation. Okay, okay, I get what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Not that you are urgent, but that the situation... Okay, gotcha. Yep, okay, that's great. So, yeah, wanting to get to the bottom of the truth. Maybe the situation calls for it. Like, you're in a situation where you need to deal with something. Yeah? I think that there's another piece, too. Like, um, sometimes if, that you really want resolution. Sure. And Sure. Yeah, that's what she was saying. Just kind of like, we do want to get to the bottom of something, for sure. As attackers, we, we have a tendency towards wanting to get to the bottom of something. Sometimes, uh, so in my relationship with my wife, I tend towards attacking, um, which again, I do agree that is pretty strong language, but it's helpful. It's a helpful category for us. Um, my wife is an avoider. Um, my wife, and, and not because she wants to sweep it under the rug, my wife needs time. Um, she needs to, like, cool down. She's very wise in that, and I just want to, like, push in. And so that works really well for us. Because um, she's like, hey, I just need some space. And I'm like, like, how about right here? Is this enough space for you? Like, four inches away from me. Um, and she doesn't, she doesn't, it turns out she doesn't like that. Um, it's weird. Okay, avoiders. Why do you think it is that you, you tend towards avoiding? Yeah. Uh, I'm the youngest of two children, and it kind of got beat out of me. I could never win. So okay. Yep. So you were the you were the younger of the two kids. Yep. Okay. I'm sorry. Yeah. Other reasons? Yeah, like in my family, like anything. Okay. Something happens and you just mums the word. Yeah. How'd that go? I mean, not so good. Yeah. yeah. How are your folks doing? They are cool. What's that? My parents are cool. I'm sorry. Yeah. Me too. Got 
four divorces and two parents. Um, we should talk later. Um, other reasons why we avoid avoid conflict, yeah. We don't want to create more conflict, right? Like yeah. peacekeepers, and sometimes it's like, well, I'll just take it on myself so I don't hurt anybody. Okay, yeah. So we bear it in order to not blow it up. Yeah, yeah make it bigger. Yeah, that's a great. That's a great. Other reasons. I would want to be an attacker in terms of just like dealing with the issue because I'm very blunt and like sure. communicating, but yeah. I'm too afraid to actually initiate it because mm-hmm. I don't know. I just don't want to bring up the problem even though I'm constantly thinking about it. So I don't necessarily know mm. the answer. So you dwell on it, oh, but yeah. but not to the degree that it makes you do something about it. Thanks for being so vulnerable. That's great. Why do you think, maybe let me ask this, attackers. Oh, sorry, go ahead, please. Maybe you avoid it because you don't have a plausible solution. Oh, okay, yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, like, I want to have this figured out before I walk into a situation. Yeah, that's, that's really good. Like, I need, to get, I need to get my PR ducks in a row. Before I um, step up to the podium, that's great. Yeah. Uh, sometimes addressing situations that you resolve is pretty overwhelming, and I'll go through every scenario in my mind, like possible things that are going. Yeah. 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 That's great. That's really good. What's that? You need to calm down. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's, I mean, talking about my wife. I, in no way am I saying she's wrong and I'm right. I'm not right. I think there's a ton of wisdom to just like, hey, I need some space. Actually, I think medically, like when your heart rate increases, um, your ability to think rationally just, just goes, yeah, I mean, it, it goes rock bottom. Like you, you do not think rationally when your heart rate goes up. Isn't that fascinating? So, like, when you've got road rage, like, road rage is a real thing because you turn into a moron because somebody else was a moron. It's bizarre. So, conflict is a very real thing. Um, I feel like I had another question. Now I can't think of it. Um, No. Uh, But the gospel calls us. So, conflict is real. In a world where sin um, is always going to be present until Jesus returns or we return to him, um, conflict will exist. And yet in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no conflict. There will be no tears. There will be no strife between people. There will be perfect communion, uh, communion and relationship and community. Um, and yet here, um, kind of this side of the already and not yet, we do have conflict in this world. And so dealing with it is important. Confrontation. The gospel is inherently confrontational. And so, so what's helpful for us as avoiders, if we're an avoider, is to recognize that, that a dead guy hanging on a tree forces you to deal with sin. Now, you might not deal with it the way you should. You might run away. You might, um, your heart, you might harden your heart like Pharaoh did. You might see the works of God and say, I'm not going to believe that. I'm not going to deal with that. I'm not going to actually make sense of that. But as avoiders... We have to recognize that the gospel forces us to good and healthy confrontation. Not because it's easy, because it's not easy, but because it's good. 
Because it's inherently tied to the gospel. The gospel forces us to confront sin in our lives, in this world, between us and God and us and people. Now, as attackers, what's helpful to know is that the gospel calls us to deal with sin well and wisely and tactfully. It calls us to actually recognize there's a way in which dealing with sin between person to person, so P2P, um, confrontation. How do we deal with that? There is like a means to doing that that is helpful, that's good. Um, this morning, a friend of mine, um, last night a friend of mine texted me and he said, hey, let's grab breakfast tomorrow morning. And I was like, oh, that sounds great. I love breakfast. I eat it every single day. Um, so yes, I'd love to have that with you. And so we meet for breakfast and, and um, we, you know, we sit down and we're having something to eat. And um, <laughs> it became very clear after about 10 minutes of talking, you know, some catching up, how are things going? And then there was like, so just help me understand, like, you know, how's parenting going? I've been praying for you about these things and things that I had told him about. And he spent some time with us this weekend and saw us interacting with our children. It was a long and hard weekend. And we just, it was not like a good family weekend. And we were not great parents with our children. This friend of mine this morning <laughs> over a Panera bagel, just gently, lovingly, carefully asked me, hey, how's your sin with your kids going? <laughs> and he confronted me on it. And it was beautiful and it was good. And, and um, you know, praise Jesus, I wasn't defensive. I don't know why. Only by his spirit. was It was probably because I was like half awake at that point. <laughs> um, but praise God for being half awake and dealing with your sin at 6 o'clock in the morning. And um, so there's a way for us attackers to actually deal with sin that's tactful and helpful. We can, we can want to get to the bottom of something, but we can recognize that people will react differently in the ways that we address sin with them, right? And so if we just bull rush like a bull into a china shop and say, hey, we've got to deal with this right now, sometimes some people don't deal with that well. So the Bible talks about um, Matthew 18. Ooh, we should move. Matthew 18 kind of talks about, let me read this real quick. You don't have to turn there. It's helpful for us. Uh, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he doesn't, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That's essentially somebody outside the family of faith. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so um, there's this picture here of of, of biblical gospel-centered confrontation where essentially when somebody um, has sinned against you, has sinned against you, you are supposed to go to them and lovingly and carefully say, okay, I see this in you. And yet we see also, so this is in Matthew chapter 18 in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus says very clearly in Matthew chapter 7, he does not say don't judge people. So I just want to get that out there. What he says is recognize your own sin when you're talking to people in the family of faith. I should be clear about that too. Like when you're talking to people within, within the church, when you're confronting their sin, he says your own sin will affect your understanding of their sin more than you know. So you need to address that first, but then you should still tell them, hey, I see something in you, and I love you, and I'm going to walk with you through that. And that's what the picture here in Matthew 18 is, is is going to them gently and lovingly and carefully saying, hey, I see this in you. Just like, tell me what's going on. Maybe Maybe I don't totally understand. Maybe I don't totally see perfectly, but I see something. What does that look like? When they turn you down, if they say, no, it's not there, 
then you go to somebody else. And this isn't slander. This isn't you know, gossip. This is saying, hey, do you see this in this person? I love them. I want to care for them. They say yes. And you take that person and you say, hey, we're not corroborating evidence on you, but, but we just want to say, hey, we see something in you. Multiple people see it. That's a pattern. That's not an instance of sin. And so we don't want to like nitpick at people and say, hey, you did this against me and I've never seen you do that before. That's stupid. That's unhelpful. Those are sins we should bear. Those are sins that we should say, like, I'm just going to take that on. But when there's a pattern of sin, you want to come to somebody and say, hey, I love you. And I want to walk with you through this and I see this thing. And if they disagree with that and they deny that, then you take it to, it says here the church. And, and, and it probably, that, that's a good rendition. I'm not saying the Bible is bad. What I'm saying is it, it probably means not like taking it on a Sunday morning and going, hey, somebody sucks at life. Instead, taking it to the leadership of, of the church and saying, hey, we see something with this person. We, we want to address it and deal with that. So the Bible calls us, the gospel calls us to real, healthy confrontation. Um, we're going to take a quick 10-minute break. And what I want you to do is, um, the third night of Gospel Center Life is really helpful because we have one more night after this. If you have any questions, really about anything we've talked about in Gospel Center Life, one. Uh, anything we've talked about tonight, two or just anything about Park Church. We recognize that most of you are probably relatively new to Park. That's why you're here in Gospel Center Life. And we want to be very transparent about kind of who we are and what we're doing here at Park. And we give some time on night three of Gospel Center Life to just say, hey, what questions do you have about any of those things? Um, We'll answer some of that after that. And then we'll talk about forgiveness is the last thing we talk about tonight. So take 10 minutes, grab something to drink. It's a little warm in here. Um, Use the restroom, whatever you need to do. Stand up, move your legs around so that we don't fall asleep together. Okay, let's talk about forgiveness. We're great on time. We've got nine minutes. Perfect. Um, if you guys have any other questions, which I'm sure you do, please like come holler at me afterwards. I'd love to tell you more about Park Church, Gospel Communities, anything we're doing here, just to help um, answer any questions you guys have. And we'll be around for another week, too. Um, let's talk about forgiveness. Um, if you have your Bible again, turn with me to Matthew 18. feels like it got 10 degrees hotter in here. That's true. Thank you. Anne-Marie. Matthew chapter 18, let's uh, start in verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. It's a lot of times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, uh, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should you not have 
had mercy on your fellow servant, as I had had mercy on you. And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers, until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So we get a picture in this passage just of the nature of true forgiveness. That, that forgiveness flows from a heart that understands that they are forgiven. So the picture in this, in this parable, in this story that Jesus is telling is, he always starts parables with the kingdom of God is like. And it's like this, this um, person, this, this, this money lender or this, this um, yeah, money lender is probably the best thing to use. And um, somebody owed him a lot of money, like hundreds of thousands of dollars, like years of wages. And, um, and he was calling the debt back in, and um, the man fell on his knees and said, said, will you please forgive me of this debt? Like that's the language that forgiveness calls, is a debt has been, has been called, and forgiveness is saying you are now released of that debt. And so in that, the, the master lets that debt go. He forgives that debt. And then the servant goes and finds somebody with, with a, kind of a petty debt, like a much smaller debt, especially in comparison. I mean, it wasn't like cents on the dollar. Um, maybe I should say it was cents on the dollar. It wasn't dollars, though. It was still like a debt. Um, and yet he could not forgive the man who forgave his debt, which is, is absolutely unique when you think about it this way. Um, so you think about the master and then the servant and then the person who owed the servant money. This person's de- debt down here, in one sense, was still owed to this person up here, right? To the master himself. And yet the master forgave the, the debt of the servant and then this person's debt, this person down here, their debt should have been forgiven technically even in that. And so in that there's this picture that for us as Christians, as gospel people, Forgiveness flows from a heart that understands that we are truly and perfectly and completely forgiven. We have been forgiven the debt um, that is first and foremost against God. Psalm 51, um, uh, probably five weeks ago now, I think. I can't remember who even preached it. I think Brian, maybe Gary, but preached on Psalm 51. And one of the most helpful things to recognize about Psalm 51 is, is David is basically saying, create in me a clean heart, O God. He says, I have sinned against you and you alone. What's unique about that story or about that psalm, I should say, is it's rooted in the story of David with Bathsheba. And in that story, David literally sins against every single person he knows. He sins against his wife, his children, the woman Bathsheba, her husband Uriah, his entire army. He sins against them by putting them in a, in a terrible place in battle and then telling them to pull back. Basically, basically saying, hey, you guys are going to run into something that's stupid and you're going to pull back so that hopefully Uriah dies. He sins against his entire nation because as the king, he's supposed to hold up character and honor and integrity in all things. His sin affects everyone. And in that passage, in Psalm 51, he says, against you and only you have I sinned. And that's not because he's saying, I haven't actually sinned against all these people. He's saying, no, my sin is first and foremost against the holy and just God. And so for you and for me to recognize that this gospel calls us to understand that we are sinners. And so the people that we hold grudges against, the people that we withhold forgiveness from, the people that we refuse to say, you are forgiven. 
we are in effect saying we don't believe that we are forgiven. We're denying the forgiveness that's been offered to us in the gospel when we deny it to other people. That's what this parable is saying. And so for us as gospel people, we have to recognize that forgiveness is definitely costly, like a real debt has been paid. But in the good news of Jesus, He has paid that debt for us. And on top of that, um, yeah, I don't need to say more about that at this point. But on top of that, I should say, there it was, figured it out. Um, Forgiveness means real reconciliation. It means real relationship is actually restored. Um, the guys in the Gospel Center Life who wrote the book do a really good job of talking about how oftentimes we, we forgive, but we don't forget. We use that language. And there's, like, there can be wisdom. There's, like, just enough truth in that statement to be really, really dangerous. Because in certain situations, that applied to that situation is helpful in terms of like, hey, hey, we need to recognize like this person is an alcoholic, so we need to be careful like letting them around the booze drawer. Like there's a reality to that wisdom, right? And yet, we apply that to all situations of forgiveness, oftentimes. That's where our heart naturally goes. It's like, I will forgive, but I'm not going to forget. So essentially, we're, we're dangling the carrot of forgiveness in front of somebody. We're letting them take a little nibble, and then we, we take it a little bit further. Or we essentially say to somebody, how many of you guys have ever said to somebody, like, I just don't feel like you're being sincere in asking for my forgiveness? And whether you say that out loud, which I know I've heard that out loud, you say that in your heart, like, I just don't feel like they're really asking for forgiveness. I mean, they're saying the words, but I don't feel like they actually mean it, so I'm not going to actually offer them forgiveness. And I might even say to them, like, I forgive you. But in our hearts, we don't actually forgive them. The gospel tells us that, like, if you do not forgive people, you do not understand what Jesus has done for you. So I want us to take a couple minutes, it's a good time, um, a couple minutes to talk through forgiveness. Just ask the first Okay, let's come back together. It was a little shorter, but... Um, so forgiveness is, is um, inherently tied to the gospel because in the gospel there's this picture of, of, of costly sacrifice. And for us, there will be real, true sacrifice in actually forgiving people. We sometimes think that forgiveness should be this thing where it should feel easy, and if it doesn't feel easy, then I'm not going to do it. But, but we see in the gospel that there, there has to be real sacrifice. In the story of the prodigal son, right? There's a story in Luke 15 um, where, where um, the son of kind of this rich man, there, he has two sons, and one of them basically says to him, hey, I want my half of the inheritance. I'm going to take it and go do what I want to do with it, right? So he actually gives half of what he owns to this son, it's costly. There's real sacrifice. But then when he, he spends his father's inheritance and squalor and the life of riotousness and all these crazy things, and he comes back to the father, there's this beautiful picture where, where from a distance, the father sees the son, and in utter joy and excitement, he runs to him, basically naked, like naked and unashamed type language. He, he runs to him with no shame. And, and he throws his robe on him. He says, bring the fattened calf. We're going to celebrate for my son who is lost. He's now found and he's come back. So there's this beautiful picture of, of, of sacrifice and forgiveness. And yet, bringing the, the lost child back into the family with joy and celebration. In the gospel, we get the exact same picture. 
God the Father sent the Son who bore the penalty, the wrath, the sacrifice for us in order that we might have true and lasting forgiveness where the Father sings over us in joy and celebration for my child who is lost has now come back. Bring the fattened calf. We're going to party like it's 1999. And so for us as gospel people, for us as people who know Jesus, forgiveness is, is one of the primary ways, one of the most important ways that we actually communicate and bear the gospel to other people is as we forgive them, not because they deserve it, not because they deserve it, but because they don't, just like we didn't, just like we still don't. If you guys have any questions about anything else, please come holler at me. I'd love to answer any questions you guys have. Otherwise, we'll see you next week. Have a great night.